And Father, we uh, lend our allegiance to things that are far inferior to you, Lord Jesus. You are our good and gracious King, and you are our only King. And Father, we entrust our time to you. We pray, God, Father, as we have lifted our voices to you in song, to glorify you, God, I pray that you would allow us to lift our ears to you this morning as we hear your word and lift our hearts to you this morning and lift our minds to you as we ponder your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't also say happy Mother's Day. And kids, it's time for Children's Church, but before you go, give mommy a hug and kiss, okay? So, and, but don't go until you, there you go, Micah. Good job. See that? Yeah. I better see you kissing your mom's boys. So, anyway. So, you know, did anyone like me get a gift that was sort of self-centered for their, their wives on Mother's Day? Yeah, absolutely not. I don't mean like a vacuum cleaner or uh, something like that. I've, a new smoker. Yeah, I got Mandy a new smoker for all the meat that she smokes. Yeah. I, I did get her cake decorating tools, though. Totally selfless, right? She's, she'll never use those cakes, cake decorating tools to feed me any delicious cake. Um, no. You know, it's almost hard uh, to buy a gift for your wife and, and mother because they're so selfless in many ways, right? No matter what you get them, it's going to end up being to your benefit, right? So we're thankful for godly mothers and godly wives in this body. So ladies, thank you and happy Mother's Day. So keep your Bibles open this morning. Go to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be digging into verses 16 to 23. I've got a lot to cover. So I want to soldier through it. Today's heavy on information, heavy on exhortation, a little bit light on illustration, which is good, means I can go through this information a little more quickly. So um, we come back this morning to our study, going through the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. And if you can go back in your memories to previous sermons, uh, I have spent some time explaining the occasion for this letter. In other words, what prompted Paul to write it? And we've talked and we've sang about the, what, the thing that the theologians call the Colossian heresy, right? We've talked about this a lot. It was the error-filled teachings that were threatening the fellowship of Christians there in Colossae that Paul was attempting to refute with this letter to them. How do we know, though, there was someone there causing problems? How do we know, though, that there was someone there attempting to lead the Colossians astray? And the evidence is there for us in the text. And let me explain that. How do we know that there was someone attempting to lead the Colossians astray? In chapter 2, Paul keeps talking about no one. You got that? Paul keeps talking about no one. Some of you are like, huh? What do you mean? Let me show you. Verse 4, Paul says, I say this to you so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or kidnap you through philosophy and empty deception. Verse 16 says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Verse 18 says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. So because Paul keeps talking about no one, we know that he's concerned about someone. 
someone in their midst or at their doors that was bringing deception that could lead them astray from Christ. So who was this someone? That's the big question that theologians ask. Who was this person, this someone that was causing trouble? And we don't know with certainty because Paul doesn't name them. But here's some options. There's a number of options, right? People have, commentators have gone through this for centuries. The first one is this. Could it have been Judaizers? Judaizers were those like the ones Paul identifies in other letters that he wrote. Those were the ones that were attempting to impose Jewish religious ordinances like circumcision and Sabbath keeping and dietary rules upon Gentile converts in the early church. And this is a possibility. There's some evidence that it could have been Judaizers. A second option, though, is that it could have been Gnostics or pre-Gnostics. And those are people that were later identified by the early church fathers, and they were refuted by early church fathers like Irenaeus. And these people polluted Christianity in its early days with a pursuit of esoteric or occult knowledge that they thought would supplement and eventually overshadow the knowledge of God in Christ. And this is a possibility based on what we read in Colossians 2. A third option is that it could have been Eastern or Oriental mystics. Those who would introduce spiritual practices in Colossae. Um, Spiritual practices um, like astrology. Encounters with spirit beings who could convey guidance and and knowledge to the practitioners. Um, It could include things like devotion to elemental spirits or spiritual insight. And this is a possibility also given the pagan culture that Colossae was situated in. A fourth option is the Essenes. The Essenes. Who were the Essenes? Well, the Essenes were a Jewish sect in the first century. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes are the ones that most scholars talk about. And they were a Jewish sect that was headquartered in the Qumran community around and near the Dead Sea. It's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from, uh, this, this community. And their practices of asceticism and the fact that they were, they were not confined to just that region around the Dead Sea makes them a possibility. And for generations, the most influential commentary on Colossians was written by a guy named Bishop J.B. Lightfoot. And he argued that the Colossian heresy was rooted in the teachings and the practices of the Essenes. But as more information about the Essenes community has surfaced after the, the discovery of the, the, the scrolls in the, in the caves at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we learn more about their community and their manner of life. And when those things emerge, the findings in those, those caves makes that seem to be a less likely possibility. But it's still a possibility. So ultimately, to answer that question, we don't know precisely who they were, who this someone was, because we're not told. But if you're anything like me, you might find this a very interesting topic to research. Um, So perhaps, for some of you, I've whetted your appetite a little bit on uh, a potential deeper study on this subject. So if that's the case, I can point you and provide you uh, with some good resources if you want to study it further. If you do, and you come up to some good conclusions and findings, let me know. I'd be interested in talking more about it with you. I find this type of stuff fascinating. So my personal estimation regarding who the someone was, and for what it's worth, this is just my personal estimation, um, 
who I identify as the source of the Colossian heresy is that it, it doesn't have to be confined to one threat. Paul's use of no one doesn't have to be understood singularly. It more likely is conveying that the threat was multi-pronged or like a, a, a battlefield with many fronts that was facing the Colossians. And the threat could just as easily have been plural. It could have been a syncretistic type threat against God's people in Colossae. So while we don't know the identity or the identities of the heretics, we do know some of what they taught based on what Paul refutes in this passage. Philosophy, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. These were four characteristics of this heresy. And in the last two sermons, the one from three weeks ago on verses 8 to 10, and the one from two weeks ago on verses 11 to 15, when we were privileged to witness five baptisms on the same day we talked about baptism in the passage, still blows me away, we were beginning to concern ourselves with the elements of the heresy. Verses 8 to 10 mentions a philosophy or an empty deception as a threat. Verse 14 mentions a certificate of death consisting of decrees. And I believe this reference actually hints at something that Paul's going to develop further in the verses before us today, and that's legalism. So Paul's main strategy, though, in combating this heresy thus far has not been to confront it head on. Rather, it's been to remind them of the overwhelmingly amazing treasure that they have in their relationship to Jesus Christ. His strategy has been to exalt Christ as, as the greatest of all, the, the most worthy, the, the most glorious, the most powerful, the most loving God that they could ever encounter. And thus, with, with this foundational truth about the person and the work of, of Jesus laid down in this letter, he goes on, Paul then goes on to address elements of the heresy head on. But he addresses them by conveying to the Colossians the appropriate response to these false teachings that a proper understanding of Jesus implies. In other words, if these things about Jesus are true, then by implication, you ought to understand that these other teachings are false. No reality, no truth, first and foremost. First and foremost. So, more important than knowing all the details of the heresy and the falsehood, knowing the truth about Jesus is preeminent. Just clinging to Jesus and growing in your knowledge of Him will safeguard you from these false teachings. But nonetheless, nonetheless, you need to be aware of potential pitfalls and dangers. There's a time and a place for refuting falsehood head on. And that's what Paul's doing in the verses today that are before us. So here's our path forward. That's kind of a long intro. Here's our path forward today as, as we flesh out this mysterious heresy threatening the Colossians. The first thing I want to do is go through the text and discuss the remaining three elements of the heresy that we haven't discussed. Legalism in verses 16 to 17. Mysticism in verses 18 to 20. Asceticism in verses 20 to 23. And I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time, this outline is a little more tidy than the text actually reads. When we read through it, you'll see that it actually blends elements together somewhat. But this rough outline, I think, is helpful to you, at least in terms of keeping notes and keeping things organized. 
But as we ascertain the meaning of the text, we're also going to concern ourselves with modern iterations of these errors that still threaten us today. And I won't have time to develop our understanding of these threats. I will just identify and quickly define some threats that I perceive worth noting. And these could make for some other interesting group discussions during Sunday school or during small group if some gentleman would be interested in studying and tackling some of these few for future classes. That could be fun. Um, but the second thing I want to do, so that's the first thing. I want to go verse by verse and describe the heresy. The second thing I want to do is discuss Paul's action plan for dealing with the heretics. What did he say they needed to do? And the third and final thing that I want to do, it was I want to conclude our time together discussing Paul's remedy against the heresy and the genuine means that he gives for spiritual, for spiritual growth. Okay? That's the third and final thing I want to do. So, let's go to the text. Verses 16 to 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance... The substance belongs to Christ. So just as there were those trying to delude them back in verse 4 and take them captive back in verse 8, there were also those setting themselves over the Colossians as their judge in certain matters. Right? Someone who acts as a judge is assuming a place of authority over another. Paul was saying that those who were acting this way were illegitimate. They didn't have any real authority. It was illegitimate. They were just acting in such a way as to intimidate them into submission or agreement with their teaching. And judging conveys that, conveys that they, they were the ones who knew what was right and what was wrong. And they were determining who was approved and who was condemned. Who was right in their estimation of the truth and who was wrong in their estimation of the truth? What were the issues that these guys were setting themselves up as judges on? And there were two of them. Diet and days, it tells us. The first one, diet. They were acting as their judge in regard to food and drink. They were also acting as their judge in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And these were prominent issues in the early church that they debated at length. And we can see evidence of this all throughout the New Testament in the epistles and in the book of Acts. With regard to food, Jesus spoke authoritatively on the subject in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 9. He was speaking to the Jews and, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it's not going into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. And the author of Mark inserts at this point that when Jesus said this, that he declared all foods clean. So apparently, people weren't understanding, there were some Jewish people who weren't understanding that Jesus had already declared all foods clean. Paul himself had to deal with these issues later on. Elsewhere, Romans 14 to 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at what he says in Romans 14, 1 to 4. It sounds very similar to what he says here in Colossians. He says, Accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? It says. 
So in Colossians, very similarly, Paul's not condemning those who adhere to dietary restrictions and who attend festivals. Paul himself attended festivals, right? He attended the Passover himself after he had become a Christian. What he's condemning is the passing of judgment on those who do not. These food and festival distinctions in the text make it appear that an element of the heresy for the Colossians was of Jewish origin. It's very clear. Along with the mention of circumcision back in in verse 11 of of chapter 2, that also makes it very clear that part of the Colossian audience that Paul was writing to were Jewish people, Jewish believers. And the grouping of festival, new moons and Sabbaths, that's actually echoed, it's an echo of Old Testament language that would have been familiar to Jewish readers. In 1 Chronicles chapter 23, verses 31, it says, They are to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord, and likewise at evening, and to offer all burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the fixed festivals. Right? So this is an echoed terminology from the Old Testament that Paul uses here in Colossians. The Jews there would have noticed that. So there were those in Colossae who were being judged by those of a Jewish perspective because they were not keeping dietary or festival ordinances from the Old Testament. And verse 17, it also proves to us, by the way, that the ordinances or the decrees that were being asserted here in Colossae were from the Old Testament because they're described as being a mere shadow of what is to come. The thing that was to come was the new covenant ushered in by by Jesus Christ in His first coming. What Jesus brought was the substance of that, or that reality, or literally the body of that shadow. What had come before was the shadow. It was a foreshadowing. And we know that the Old Testament religious system was that which foreshadowed the coming of Christ. The ceremony, the festivals, etc. These were all shared a similarity or a resemblance, just like a shadow does, to what Jesus fulfilled in reality. This is also actually another very worthy study. You could go very deep into this, going through all of the seven festivals from Leviticus 23 and seeing how they foreshadow Jesus and how Jesus fulfills them. It's a, it's a fascinating study. So if anybody wants to tackle that one and do that in Sunday school, guys, come on. Here's some ideas for you. I'm trying to feed you. Um, but there was no requirement anymore for believers in Jesus, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, to obey dietary ordinances or laws regarding the observance of days. If you remember Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council that met like a decade prior to when Paul wrote this letter, you remember what they decided on what was required of Gentile converts? It was very little. It was very little. It didn't mention anything about Sabbaths or keeping festivals at all. And the Colossian heretics were violating that council's edict about what was binding for the Gentiles, and they sought to reimpose things. So these were the legalistic threats to the Colossian fellowship. It was a reversion back to obligatory adherence to the law. And this was a big problem. Paul wanted them to know that they were not obligated to obey the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament. Are there legalistic threats for us today? Yes, there are legalistic threats for us today. I think of one in particular. I don't think that it plagues us here very much, but some of you are familiar with it. It's called the the Hebrew Roots Movement in Christianity. This is a resurfacing in some ways of the same error. In their most extreme form, 
they, they seek to reimpose the observance of Old Testament dietary and calendar regulations on Christians today. And hear me, there's no problem at all studying these things and even observing them if you want to, just so as to glean a greater appreciation of, of what Christ has brought. We've actually had the, youth, the kids in the youth group, Darla has led them in a Seder dinner so they could kind of get a, a, a clearer picture of what it was they did in the Old Testament and how it points forward to Jesus. There's actually value in that. But they should never be treated as a requirement or as necessary supplements to your faith. Here's another potential legalistic threat that faces us today. And it's hypersectarianism or hyperfundamentalism. You can think of it at that point. There's certain pet doctrines that have plagued the church for generations that people adhere to these things in a very dogmatic way. And we all as humans have a tendency to kind of revert back to that checklist of simple rules to follow, right? We want to distill everything down into, okay, what do I need to do? Just give me the five things I need to do and I'll do them and I'm good, right? We, want to, we all have that tendency. And this is kind of where legalism crops in with that tendency. But the root of so many of these denominational divisions in Christianity has been the requirement to adhere to traditions of New Testament in, in interpretation as ordinances. And so we tend to replace Old Testament regulations in favor of New Testament regulation. Things that were given to us in the New Testament so, at, so as to impose on us just a new set of rules to adhere to. If we follow these New Testament rules, we'll make God happy. It's just another form of legalism. The whole point of the gospel, hear me on this, guys, this is so important. The whole point of the gospel is that God has invited us into a relationship with himself through his son, Jesus. It's not just a new imposition of a bunch of rules and regulations to follow. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is knowing Jesus. Christianity is knowing God the Father through Christ the Son. Let's move on. That second heresy. Mysticism, verses 18 to 20. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself? So like those standing in judgment, back in verse 16, the heretics, whoever they were, were also attempting to defraud the Colossian Christians. And this word is a little bit hard to translate. The New American Standard and the Legacy Standard, they tra translate it as defraud. Other translations say disqualify. Others say beguile. Others say cheat. Others say condemn. Others say rob. The word conveys the imagery of an umpire in a sporting event or a referee. Like a, an umpire who makes a bad call. Like calling a batter out at the plate with a strike called on a pitch that's over the batter's head, right? What? I'm out? The pitch was up over here over my head. Or like the refs uh, during the playoff games with the Bengals and the, uh, the, the Chiefs, right? Um, yeah. Who, who stood for pictures with Mahomes after the game. I'm just saying, right? Um, 
this is the sense of this word. It's like someone who's a fraudulent umpire, a bad referee who, who throws the game in favor of another because they took a bribe. The word is actually used in an old ancient Greece context of one who, by bribing judges, causes another to be condemned. So those who were trying to defraud the Colossians, they're described in four ways in these, these verses. And the first one is this. Those doing the defrauding are described as delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Self-abasement is the word for humility. It's the same word for humility. But since it's used in a negative sense here in the context, it's often translated here as false humility, depending on what version you have. The sense is these heretics were disingenuous. They appear humble, they appear harmless, and, and truly concerned for others, while being uninterested in themselves. This is what they present themselves as. And their false humility extends to their worship. They're too lowly to even consider themselves worthy of approaching God or or worshiping God or hearing from God on their own or directly. Thus, they would only dare worship, because they were so humble, a lower spirit being. They delighted in the worship of angels, it says. And this goes along with the previous mention of of rulers and authorities and thrones and dominions. These were angelic spirit beings. Elemental spirits or principalities. Angelic beings who acted as intermediaries between themselves and God. This was so serious that it could cause the Colossians to forfeit their prize, it says. The the prize that they had in Jesus. Because this teaching denied the truth that there's only one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 If you recall back, Jesus himself forbids the worship of angels. Remember when he was fasting in the desert and he rebuked Satan, the angel. Satan, the angel who wanted Jesus to worship him. He said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4, verse 10. Incidentally, I thought this was interesting from history. It would seem that the worship of angels was a practice that endured for a long time in the Phrygian and Lycus Valley regions where Colossae was. Theodoret, um, who was an influential teacher in the school of Antioch, he was also a Bible commentator. He was a, the bishop of Cyrus between the years 423 A.D. and 457 A.D., so really early on in church history. In his commentary on Colossians, he indicated uh, in his comments on verse 18, the disease of angel worship, which Paul denounces, continued long in Phrygia and in Pisidia. So long, in fact, that there was a church council held in Laodicea for this, partly for this reason. In 363 AD, the council of Laodicea met in Laodicea, um, which during Paul's day was only like nine miles away from Colossae. Remember, they were both Lycus Valley cities. And canon number 25 from that church council that was published stated this, it's not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and to go away to invoke angels. So the, it, history bears out the reality of what was going on here in Colossians. Very interesting, I thought. Back to self-abasement and, and false humility. It can also refer to some of the ascetic practices that, they are, that are later described in verses 21 to 23. In verse 23, the same word, self-abasement, it's coupled with severe treatment of the body. 
So whatever denials and whatever disciplines that they were imposing on their flesh were masquerading as humble, yet superior spirituality that they thought that they sought to spread to the faithful in the church at Colossae. So they wanted to look humble, but they really thought inside, we're superior to you guys. In reality, what they were introducing was an insidious occultism. It would rob the Christians of their joy and their peace in Jesus if they adopted these practices. And the second description of these defrauders was that they they took their stand on visions that he has seen or they have seen. In other words, they were engaging in practices or disciplines or rituals that were designed to allow them to enter in or intrude into. That's actually what the word take their stand translates, what it actually means. To intrude in or enter into the spirit realm. To receive mystical visions. And Paul doesn't dispute that the visions that these heretics reported to see were real. They likely reported them as coming from communication with angels or these elemental spirits, as verse 20 is rendered in the English Standard Version. These visions that they had seen likely caused them to exhibit the third characteristic or the third description that Paul gives them, and that's that they were inflated without cause by their fleshly mind or his fleshly mind. So they presented themselves as as abased and humble, but they were internally as arrogant as they could be. They were inflated or puffed up with a sense of pride in their own spiritual development. They were patting themselves on the back that they had entered into the spirit realm and they had emerged with a vision that they could share with the masses. The reality of what they thought of themselves in their own minds was that they were something special. They were an elite initiate. They had been entrusted with access from a higher spiritual plane. And Paul says that this inflated sense of self that they have was without cause. In other words, their appraisal of themselves was vanity. It wasn't real. It didn't reflect true spiritual reality. It was fraudulent. Not in the sense that the visions weren't real, but in the sense that the visions came from inferior and false sources. They didn't come from the head, right? The one, the head, Christ Jesus, who is over all spiritual forces. And that leads us to our fourth description. They were not holding fast to the head. They were not attached to the head. Who was Jesus? The visions they received in their worship of angels provided them as much guidance and direction that's exhibited by a person who has been decapitated. Right? I remember when I was a kid, my grandparents' farm, they would sometimes kill chickens and they would cut their heads off. And that's where the phrase, you're running around like a chicken with its head cut off, comes from, right? Because you can chop that head off and the body will still flop around and run around and do all sorts of things for a few seconds until the blood runs out and its nerves die. But it looks like it's alive. Right? In the final throes of death after that decapitation, it'll twitch, it'll flop, it'll move. Those who seek to receive visions from occult practices exhibit as much true spiritual direction and wisdom as a body that has been decapitated exhibits. Does that make sense? It might seem real, like a dead body that's been decapitated might twitch and flop, but it's dead. 
that spirituality is dead and it will lead to death. So these Colossian heretics who were pushing mysticism upon the faithful of Colossae looked humble, but they were secretly blown up like a balloon with airy pride. They were trying to introduce occult, mystical, spiritual practices into the Colossian fellowship. And these are practices forbidden by God. It would totally shipwreck their faith if, if they went along with these. It would totally shipwreck their stability in Jesus if they went along with these. And I ask you, are there dangers for Christians today in the realm of mysticism? And oh my goodness, yes. There are so many dangers in this regard. Our popular culture, you guys are all aware of this, is enamored and obsessed with the occult today. My son's favorite movie in the Marvel movie uh, portfolio is Doctor Strange, right? Doctor Strange is nothing more than an occultist, right? I let my kids watch an occultist on TV. So you do too if you've watched Doctor Strange. Anyway, um, you know, hands down, the most popular fiction novels in the Western world for much more than a decade are the Harry Potter novels, right? They've done more to popularize magic and occultism than almost anything else in recent memory. I remember a few years back going to see the movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, which was all about discovering the hidden knowledge of secret societies that some of America's founding fathers participated in during our founding, our nation's early history. And I told the young men that I went to see the movie with that that was the most effective marketing strategy I had ever seen for the Masonic Lodge. I bet their membership burgeoned after that movie came out. I don't know. I'm just suspecting. But the allure of a secret spiritual knowledge is incredibly powerful. And it's incredibly evil as well. We're naturally curious about these type of things. The church has any number of its own flirtations with these types of mystical errors. And I'll just list a few of them. A number of years ago, I taught a Sunday school on contemplative prayer, sometimes called Lectio Divina, or centering prayer, or the practice of labyrinths. And these practices are deceptively labeled as types of prayer or prayer practices. But they're designed to produce an altered state of consciousness through the emptying of the mind. They're occult practices. Roman Catholic prayers still exist today that that they pray. Prayers to St. Michael, the archangel. Prayers to St. Gabriel, the archangel. Prayers to Raphael. Prayers to the guardian angel. You can go to traditionalcatholicprayers.com and read those prayers for yourself. That type of stuff still exists. Here's a big one. We move on from that. Here's a big one that we, come, we encounter today. It's very current. And it's the Enneagram. Or the Enneagram. I'm not exactly sure which way to pronounce it. I've heard both. You guys heard of the Enneagram? It's becoming very popular in evangelical circles. And it's marketed as a useful tool for identifying personality types. They say it's just like the Myers-Briggs. It's not. Its origin is with three occultists. They were deeply involved in the occult. And some evangelical churches are actually requiring an Enneagram testing for evaluation purposes before they hire staff. They want to make sure your personality profile is going to mesh with their group. I kid you not. The New Apostolic Reformation, hypercharismatics. In these groups, there is a never-ending emphasis on spiritual experiences. 
subjective words of prophecy directly from God, they say. Ecstatic manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of individual worshipers. And the pressure, in a lot of cases, to speak in tongues or to be slain in the Spirit or to be overwhelmed with a a holy laughter for those attending these types of meetings, the pressure is immense. And the same fruit of spiritual pride and superiority over those who have not shared in those experiences are exhibited. Often the visions that they boast about are are just as fraudulent and the attitudes of those visionaries who have those visions are are just as judgmental as those of the heretics in Colossae. I've had this experience. Have you? Why haven't you? What's wrong with your faith if you haven't experienced these phenomena? Let's move on. The third heresy, the third element of the heresy, verses 20 to 23. If you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Paul's being sarcastic there. He really is. Which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. So Paul reminds the Colossians of what he had said when he discussed their baptism just a few verses prior. And that baptism symbolized their death with Christ to this world. And its systems, and those governing spirits, those inferior spiritual entities. And he uses the term elementary principles or elemental spirits again. It's as if he's saying to them, remember, you died and rose again with Jesus. And at his cross, he defeated those rulers and authorities. Verse 15. The rules that they dictate to you do not apply any longer. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 4. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is what he was warning them against in Colossians. By means of the hypocrisy of all liars and seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage, men who advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Joe Rigney said something very good on this point, on asceticism, that I thought was worth sharing. Here's what he says. He says, It's dangerous when asceticism and self-denial become ends in themselves, when they become not simply a discipline on the way to full and lasting joy in God. Paul goes so far as to say that those who teach abstinence from foods or abstinence from marriage in this kind of absolute, unqualified way are following the teaching of demons. And this is what demons want. Demons want you to think of God as the great forbidder. They want you to think of the things of earth as bad in themselves. There's two errors that the demons want you to make. They want you to go whole hog into hedonism or 
Whole hog into asceticism. It's all good. It's all pleasure. I love it. No, it's all bad. I must be holy. I must restrain and abstain from all of these things. The demons are behind both. I thought that was a good quote. And what were these demonically inspired teachers espousing? Paul quotes them. He's quoting them here. And it's mockery. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Lest you think I made that up. Augustine said this about that verse. He says, sure, he used these words in mockery of those by whom he did not want his followers to be deceived and led astray. Paul is using their own words against them. It's self-evident these guys are liars. Listen to them. And so, and these things that were in reference here are foods or, or meats. And we can tell that by the next verse because it says all of these commands, all of these things refer to things that are destined to perish with use. In other words, once you eat them, they perish. Very similar to what Jesus said back in Mark 7, right? It goes into the stomach. It's eliminated. It becomes waste. Paul says that these things sound wise and they're tempting because they sound so wise. And he describes it as, as a harsh treatment of the body. But he says it actually is useless in the matter which it purports to control. Fleshly indulgence. In other words, overcoming sinful passions. There's another way this could be taken. MacArthur says this regarding this verse. He says, false standards of spirituality serve only to indulge the flesh. Self-styled asceticism elevates the flesh and makes a person proud about his sacrifices, about his visions and spiritual achievements. It takes away from Christ and enslaves the ascetic to fleshly pride. So in Colossae, this was yet another way in which the false teachers distinguished themselves as having a, a higher form of spirituality that pleased God. And today we find iterations of this same type of temptation to pride creating self-denial. And it's this tendency that self-denial has at creating a sense of, I'm better than them because I don't indulge. I go without, and I live a life of poverty, of the poor. How can they claim to, to love Jesus and be so indulgent in the things of the world? This tendency to judge is all around us. MacArthur goes on to say, in reality, vows of poverty, cloistered isolation, like monks or ascetics get engaged in, rigorous self-denial, they never catch God's attention or garner His favor. Asceticism is nothing more than a superficial facade of piety, concealing the same darkened heart that all pagans have. True growth in holiness springs forth from a regenerate heart that delights in pleasing God through obedience. All right, let's move on. I've covered the three elements of the heresy. Let's go on to Paul's action plan for dealing with the heretics. So how does Paul deal with these false teachings in his letter? And I find this part very interesting, okay? So perk up. If you got a little bored with the first part, perk up. The second part is very interesting. I think the first part was too, but you're wrong if you disagree. Anyway, so Paul describes to the Colossians why these philosophies, this legalism, this asceticism, this mysticism are harmful. But he never addresses the false teachers directly. Instead, look what he does. He tells the Colossians 
that it's their responsibility to stand up to them. Do you see that? Let me help you. You remember the four no ones that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon? Verses 4, 8, 16, and 18. The sense is the same in all four instances of its use. Paul is saying that the Colossians have a responsibility to protect themselves from being deluded or being kidnapped by falsehood or being judged or being defrauded. He was telling them of the risks that these false teachers posed, but it was the Colossians' responsibility to see to it that they did not succeed in their aim of dividing the fellowship and shipwrecking their faith. The implication in these these later verses in the chapter is that some of the Colossians had been or were on the verge of being intimidated into submission by these false teachers. Can you see that? I hope this is clear. Paul was telling them to grow a backbone. Do you see that? Stand up to these liars. Grow a spine, Colossians. He wanted them to say, we're not going to let you teach this stuff any longer. We've let you run amok for too long already. No more. No more. We're we're not letting this happen any longer. Stop letting them, is what Paul says. Stop letting them. Paul gives them permission for civil disobedience here. Do you see that? In verse 20, he says, why do you submit yourselves to their decrees? The implication is, don't submit to these guys. They are illegitimate authorities over you. They have no right to be there, and you have no obligation to obey them. Their rules are man-made. They're demonically inspired. You died to all of that stuff. You're under a new king. Jesus, and and though they try to present themselves as your spiritual superiors, the truth is, you're actually higher than them. The elemental spirits have no jurisdiction over you. Stop submitting to them. The only thing to do with a delusion is to speak the truth in its face. The only way to deal with a kidnapper is to guard your kids and stand in the bad guy's way. The only way to deal with a judgmental person who sets themselves up as an authority over you is to ignore them. Their authority is illegitimate. The only way to deal with a fraud is to call them out in the open and expose their lies. You've been wet noodles long enough, Paul is saying. You've let these guys walk all over you and take advantage of you. Stop letting that happen. Let no one do that to you, is what he's saying here. The word let's a pretty powerful word, isn't it? Think of the permission it gives you. Just because the gospel instructs us to be loving and kind and respectful and gentle, and it does, hear me here, always be loving and kind and respectful and gentle, But just because the gospel instructs us to be those things doesn't mean you don't have the right to take a stand against evil. You do. In fact, your stand, the stand of Christians, ought to be the strongest of all. If you don't stand up, they will sever your connection to the head. 
They will dismember your wonderful body of fellowship. Stand up to them, Colossians. Stand up to them. Stop submitting to them. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this same permission today. We have permission to say, no, not on my watch. I'm not going to let that happen. Not in my home, not in my church. And sadly, we're in the state that we're in as a nation because we have passively let so much go on without speaking up for the truth and standing up to the the cultural bullies who have ran off with our nation's companies and our town's councils and our school boards in the counties that we live in. We've watched every institution in our nation get completely overrun with rampant evil, and we've scarcely made a peep. Some of us have. But too many of us have been quiet. We've been passive. Evangelical churches all over the place are also passively letting themselves be overrun with delusions. I've given examples of legalism and mysticism, but but the threat that is most urgent in my mind, in my opinion, is really from the philosophical arena. The church in so many places has been cowered into submission by the judgmental Marxist philosophy of progressivism in the form of critical race theory. I've watched way too many leaders, ones that I, at one point I had great respect for, cave in and be defrauded by the ideology of the radical LGBTQ movement. People willing to stand up to these two demonic ideologies are few and far between. And I know it may make some people comfortable when I mention these things and I bring them up. It sometimes may seem like I rail against these things. It's because I believe they pose the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ that I've ever seen in my life. Christians are literally under attack by these philosophies. They don't want to go get along with you. They want to destroy you. And the, firm, the sooner we get that firmly stuck in our mind, the, the sooner we'll gain the courage to stand up and say, I'm not going to let that happen. Paul in this passage gives you permission to stand up to them. Do you hear that? Cowering to these ideologies does not lead to growth and maturity in the faith. It does not lead to peace in the fellowship. It leads to death. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them defraud you. Some of you need to hear this right now because your corporations, as we head into shame month in the month of June, are about to start pressuring you to cower to their demands to pay homage to those pridefully flaunting that sin which God condemns. And it may come in a very subtle way. Just wear this shirt. Just obey the pronouns decree. Just take this training and and sign this form that you took it and agree with it. Just change your profile background. As believers, hear me guys, you have the obligation to refuse to submit to their decrees. They don't have jurisdiction over you in relation to these things. You have permission from God to say, no, I will not let you do this to me. 
Come what may in the form of consequences, I will not bow down to your false idols. You have permission to say, not on my watch. Guys, I'm thankful for the elders in our body who have taken a stand on this. And they've said, we're not letting that happen here. There's a need in the future for more men who will stand up and say, I'm not letting that happen. Not on my watch. And even if my my voice quakes, I'm going to stand up and speak out because this is a lie and I'm not going to stand by and let that type of stuff be taught here. Future men, will you answer the call when it's time? Will you vow to not let yourselves be intimidated into submission? Will you vow to protect those under your charge from the dangers arrayed against them? Will you help shepherd the church of God? Will you answer the call when it's given? Young men, will you stand up? Will you lift your voices to speak out in whatever platform you may have against evil and proclaim the goodness of Jesus and and defend his honor? Will you do that? Will you answer that call? Things to think about. I thought that was very interesting the way Paul dealt with the heretics, right? You deal with them. Don't let them do this any longer. Let's go on to the conclusion. The final thing. The reason that these heresies in Colossae were entertained at all by the faithful Christians there is because they were presented initially as helpful and and possibly necessary for growth, right? They didn't come in with all this intimidation and judgmentalism. They sold them in positive ways, right? The empty philosophy was sold as useful for growth and understanding. The judgmental legalism was held up as faithfulness to God's commands, And it was required for those who wanted to to, to be accepted by God. This is how it would have been sold. The defrauding mystics. It was marketed as, as fulfilling an access to a deeper knowledge and an experience with God. Those harsh, restrictive ascetics. It was advertised as as a holiness and a reverence that would draw you closer to God. If you really want to grow in your own spirituality, if you really want to grow your church or your movement, then you need to adopt these practices. Right? They're helpful tools. They're helpful supplements for growth. Adopt some of this. And oh, they certainly had the appearance of wisdom. Paul even acknowledges that. But they're nothing. They're nothing but man's self-made attempts at working out their own salvation, at working their way to salvation, their way to heaven. Paul dispels all of these myths about growth in one verse. He says that all of these philosophies, the legalism, the asceticism, the mysticism, it will only disconnect you from the head. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows. It grows with a growth which is from God. The growth that Christians ought to desire and seek after is only a growth that comes from God. A growth that God causes. Not a growth that they cause through through their efforts, their own strength, 
or through the assistance of some inferior spiritual forces. The growth of our own spiritual lives and and of our lives as parts of the entire body, as it says in verse 19, our church body, it's only going to occur as far as we are connected to the head. As far as we're connected to the Jesus. To Jesus. That's the only way we're going to grow. Our duty for growth is to hold fast to Him. To clutch like our lives depended on it. And never let go of Jesus. Never let anything get in the way of Him or take our attention off Him. As we hold fast to Him, our head, God provides the growth. God enables us to bear the fruit that we're intended to bear. So we don't get distracted and and caught up in philosophy. We don't fixate on the Old Testament in such a way as to reimpose its requirements upon ourselves. We worship only Jesus and we renounce mystical, self-directed forms of spirituality. We receive with grateful hearts the good gifts of this earth given to us by God for our enjoyment. And we don't necessarily deny, unnecessarily deny, or overindulge ourselves with them. We always stay in the Word. Learning more and more how to understand and how to obey the will of our Lord Jesus. And we will find God grants us true and lasting growth when we do those things. We do this as individual believers and we do this as a church body. We hold fast to Jesus. Amen? All right. I think that's enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for the richness in Colossians 2. And Father, I know I gave them a lot of information, a lot of things to think about. Father, I pray you would allow it to bear fruit. Um, Lord, I pray, Jesus, that um, we would be motivated and encouraged knowing that we have permission to stand up to these things that, um, that threaten us. And Father, I pray that as this church moves forward into the future, God, that we would take very seriously our um, obligation to not let some of these things happen that were starting to happen in the church at Colossae. I pray, God, you'd protect us. I pray, God, that we would just like uh, Mary in the Gospel of John who sat at Jesus' feet, chose the one thing needful. God, in the same way, as long as we hold fast to you, Lord Jesus, that is the one thing we need for growth. Help us to do that. Help us not to get distracted with these other things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, rise for the benediction. Brothers and sisters, though you still live in this world, you are members together of Christ's body, the church. You have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world. Therefore, let no one delude you Let no one capture you. Let no one judge you. Let no one defraud you. Be held together by the joints and the ligaments of God's word and his spirit's presence as you hold fast to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and honor forever and ever. Depart in his peace. Amen.